Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're talking about an issue that is really cutting across Indian country, really destined to make some huge changes in many communities. It's a topic that not only affects First Nation peoples, but it is special interest to many people who uh, are in indigenous communities and really talking about health care, health reimbursement, health issues. We've got an amazing guest on the show today. I am so grateful to have uh, Dr. Anthony Stately with us on today's program. Anthony, it's great to have you with us. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. Anthony, you've been uh, doing a lot throughout Indian Country over the years. Currently, I know you're the executive officer and president for the Native American Community Clinic in South Minneapolis. But having spent some time in Southern California myself over the years, uh, your name is not a strange name in that far-flung place of the country, at least relative to the Northern Plains. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, first and foremost, I'm an enrolled citizen of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin and a descendant of the Great Red Lake and White Earth Nations of Minnesota. So I'm Oneida and Ojibwe. I was born and raised in South Minneapolis most of my life. Um, I spent a little bit of time between the Twin Cities and uh, the reservations that my families were from and also um, some boarding school experience between you know the ages of like 6 and 11. And when I was about 23 years old or so, I got clean and sober as a young person. Um, I started my career in that area fairly, fairly young as an adolescent. Um, I call that my research and development years because uh, it really helped me sort of <laughs> understand what not to do. <laughs> and then I ended up moving to California when I was 23 years old. I was running away from Minnesota as much as I was running towards something. And what I mean by that is like, at the time, I was fairly early in my recovery, four months sober, I think. One day, I took a look around me and noticed that pretty much everybody I knew in my social life and many of the people in my family also at that time in my in my family history were struggling with addiction. And I just knew that it wasn't likely that I was going to be able to stay clean and sober, living in that type of a, an environment and social um, social environment. So I, I knew one person in California, in LA, and I ran there uh -huh. with with a hundred bucks in my pocket, no job, no place to live, and like an, and a prayer, really, quite frankly. So I mean, it worked out okay because I ended up being there for eighteen years, and um, and things went well. Um, meaning I, I found a sober community that I I felt like I fit into fairly decently. That was really supportive. Um, I returned to school to finish my bachelor's degree. And during that experience, a, a really wonderful, you know, just amazing mentor who I often refer to her also as an angel mm. asked me 
the question, have you ever thought about getting a PhD in psychology? You, you have some really interesting ways of thinking and understanding mm. human behavior and community behavior and the community issues. And she planted a seed that I, like I, that I said, well, no, I hadn't ever thought of that, but let me look into it. So. I love your story, Anthony. It's an inspiring story. I think so many people can relate to it, whether they're from a First Nations background or not, because so many of us go through difficulties, whether it's growing up, whether it's choices we've made early in life. And you gave us that whole picture in a nutshell. Realize that what a lot of us talk about in public health today, you know, these social determinants of health, you said, hey, this is not a good situation for me where I'm at. You relocate. And a lot of people would say, well, that didn't sound like a very good decision. At the time, I'm sure a lot of people would have questioned it. Maybe you yourself were questioning it. <laughs> but I love the fact that you get connected with education and people that are supportive and people that took an interest in you. And you're getting all this encouragement to think about doctoral training, advanced training. I mean, I know the end of the story. And anyone who looks at the end of your name and sees a PhD, they, they know where this went. But but how big a, a leap was that for someone with your background to not only get a college degree, but to say you're going to work for a doctorate? Oh, it was like there were so many hurdles and so many challenges in that trajectory. I think I remember, I think I might have actually said this to the person who her name is Dr. Paula Johnson. She's such an amazing person. Her and I had so many other mentors once I started graduate school who helped to shape me and those that formative experience who continue to inspire me but I remember saying to her like well you know that I said these little words to her I said isn't that for people who are rich and smart because I'm not I'm neither of those things is the thing mm -hmm. that I kind of intimated to her and she said well um I think you're I think you know, rich is not, she goes, we can find a way to fix that. But she goes, you are very intelligent. She goes, and you are, a, you are a thinker and a visionary and a few other things. And those were great things to hear. But, you know, I was thinking of the practical sides of things. Like I was at the time unemployed. I went back to school full time because at the time it was right around 1991, It was about the time that the first Bush president invaded um, the Middle East. And so, you know, jobs were tanking in the United States. There was a mm. recession, all kinds of things. So I thought, well, I don't have a job and I have no job opportunities. I might as well go back to school. <laughs> and so, you know, and so part of it was like, you know, part of it was just like, okay, what can I do to you know, try to advance my, my opportunities for actually getting a better job. Because mm -hmm. I was not, I didn't have a degree. I had a high school degree and I wasn't advancing anything anywhere. And I was 27 years old. <laughs> right. And so I went back to college to finish my degree. I dropped out from McAllister College in my third year. Not really a great idea, but I was actually struggling with a lot of challenges related to the addiction stuff. So I was able to do that. And in, the, in that conversation, I said to her, you know, you might as well ask me to sprout wings and fly mm. to the moon and back because that seems more feasible and plausible than what you're asking me to do. Like, I was a fairly decent writer. I think I was a fairly decent student when I was actually working with 
with intention towards that. So mm. I, I knew I had the skill set. I just didn't know where the money was going to come from. And I didn't know I had no way of manufacturing that. And people helped me. I mean, I just, people helped. I talked about it to people. I remember saying things to people like my sponsor at the time was really in recovery. And he was like, you know, what I've learned from my own recovery experience is that when you ask for help to actual people, and then you also ask for help from, you know, God or creator, help comes. And so honestly, that's what I did. I didn't, I didn't do anything really amazing. I just asked for help. I'm just so inspired. And I think a lot of folks who are listening have to be because so many times we write these narratives, like why all the reasons we can't do something. And you're sharing that, you know, that real personal experience, Anthony, we appreciate your openness. And just the fact that the creator put people in your path that encouraged you. And then you basically said, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to move forward. I think it's a story that a lot of people can take courage from because we've got listeners right now. I mean, I can guarantee you people are going to hear this show and they're going to say, well, that's me. I mean, I'm there. You know, people say I have abilities or maybe I think I do, but I just don't have opportunity. And it sounds like the one of the messages I'm taking away, and you can correct me if I'm hearing you wrong, is um, even if you don't see how things all come together, just keep putting one foot in front of the other I don't want to use the cliche one day at a time, but that's what I hear you saying. Am I hearing you right? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the ways I think about that from my own lived experience, I'm 38 years sober now and clean and sober. And I've been working in in the field of health and specifically within the field of behavioral health and addiction for a really long time, mostly because like it changed and transformed my life. It is not lost upon me when I have these conversations with like people like you and some of our listeners is like, like I could have ended up in a different place. Mm-hmm. It is very likely. Like there is nothing. I don't, I, it might seem a little contrived, but there is nothing that is different about me than any other indigenous man or woman that's sort of walking the earth. Mm-hmm. Like we are sent here by creators, these beautiful spirits. There's some things that happen to us in our lives that shape us and have impact on us. There's some real forces out there like structural racism and a few other things that we we are struggling and fighting against and leaning into, which make it very, very, very challenging for us to capitalize on things like opportunities, right? And my life, it is not lost on me that I have also not just been given opportunities, which is partially luck and partially like my drive. But I gave a talk a few years ago at Augsburg College. They asked me to do a convocation talk and I talked all about like, you know, how we often don't see the angels in our lives. Hmm. Um, We think angels have wings and really they're just spirits and sometimes they take the form of people. (laughs) And, you know, they walk into our lives at really critical moments and we don't even sometimes recognize that that they're there, that something, a creator or that, that mystery sent that person or, or put that person in your path for a particular reason. And if you're, if you're open to it and you're aware and you are sort of like, and you have the courage to step into that space, you really have an opportunity to sort of kind of do remake your life at any point in time. 
And, you know, I have had multiple experiences like that throughout my lifetime. And so I, I have lived experience multiple times of being able to, to have that experience. I say this a lot in, you know, conversations with my staff, conversations with, you know, in these kinds of contexts and uh, um, in conversations with other leaders and leadership. I'm like, you know, when I don't know how I'm going to do something, I don't know how I'm going to address an issue or a problem either in my life or my work or in the community. I, I start with prayer because that's what my ancestors and my mm. elders taught me to do. Like invite in creator, invite in the, the ancestors who are always with us, but we don't, we don't often recognize that. You know, I was taught that your ancestors are always with you. They're behind you. You oftentimes don't see them. Maybe you don't even feel them necessarily. Um, but they're always with you. And they're always there to support you. And so holding on that spiritual and ancestral sort of knowledge, wisdom, and support in times when you're, you're not sure how you're going to do a thing, you're not sure what steps to take, I think that, you know, providence and, and sacredness creates a lot of opportunity for us that we don't even have if we don't have a tremendous amount of understanding about that, and that's what makes it profound. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, Dr. Stately. I mean, so many of my listeners, I mean, we, we have uh, an audience across the spiritual spectrum, and I think so many of my listeners resonate with the topic of prayer, the topic of angels. We start talking about who people are praying to and who are those spiritual beings. I mean, sometimes we get into interesting discussions and some people say, well, our ancestors are all sleeping, and others, like you say, they're present with us. But I think that the common denominator that I hear people sharing is there is a creator. There are spiritual beings beyond us. We're not in this alone. And uh, so many of my guests, uh, you know, whether they're Native or whether they come from other faith traditions, they relate to that, and they realize, like you're sharing, that basically we're not stuck on our own. There's help available. There's a spiritual help. We want to talk more about your journey and especially about some things that are facing Indian country today. We do have to step away just briefly. I'm Dr. David DeRose. I'm talking with Dr. Anthony Stately. We'll be back right after these important messages. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. 
Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. I am Dr. David DeRose. With me, Dr. Anthony Stately. We're speaking about his amazing journey from the Northern Plains out west. And uh, ultimately, we're going to find out that uh, if you haven't picked up already, he is back in his backyard, so to speak, of where he grew up. Dr. Stately is currently the executive officer and president for the Native American Community Clinic in South Minneapolis. And uh, Anthony, I mean, so many people, it doesn't matter whether they have First Nation backgrounds or not. I mean, so many people struggle with drug and alcohol-related issues for a number of years, I still have a limited clinical practice. Interestingly, even though I'm in the Midwest, my patient practice uh, with telemedicine these days is still actually in California, Northern California, working with an underserved population there. And actually, a relatively small number of indigenous patients in the particular uh, clinic that I'm working with, but just rampant issues with drug, alcohol issues. So, I mean, this is not a... Uh, demographically stratified problem. I mean, everybody's dealing with this, families uh, across the spectrum throughout the world. You have this practical experience. You have this lived experience, a background that gives you insight into uh, some of those challenges. You get this education in Southern California. You get your PhD in psychology and where did you go with that, uh, Anthony? And how does that ultimately come back full circle to Indian country? Yeah. Um, well, when I graduated from California School of Professional Psychology in Los Angeles, after five years, um, I did some stuff while I was in school. I did some volunteer work. One of the, I think, the most transformative experiences I had, I had a really, a lot of really great experiences in, while I was in graduate school. And some big things were happening in Los Angeles, in and around Los Angeles while I was in school that really informed 
my thought process around health, well-being, and um, that whole spectrum of, of experience and, and understanding was really enriched by some really transformative things that happened. I was living in Los Angeles in California at the time of the Rodney King beating. Mm. The uprest, the civil uprest that broke out as a result of the verdict that acquitted those officers who had beaten him. And, you know, people forget that that was like 30 some years ago or almost 40 years ago. Like, you know, and this mm. is like, I think before cell phones and before we could record everything on a cell phone. And now everybody's lives are publicly are available to anybody to see. So, you know, we conduct ourselves sometimes, not always, differently in public than we do did 40 or 50 years ago. But that was a transformative experience. And I was in the middle of my training at the time. And I had a psychology instructor who was a, um, who was a, who ended up being my dissertation chair and my mentor, Dr. Shelley Harrell, an African American woman who was doing some work in South Central Los Angeles and with, with some of the civil unrest and tending to the psychological harm and the trauma related to these conditions. And so, you know, I was also at that same time, my first or second year of graduate school, I was introduced to the concept of historical trauma. I was in a class that was related to um, intercultural psychology, and um, we were looking at health and racial equity. And I read an article written by a few people about historical trauma, but the one that really was transformative was the work that Maria Yellowhurst Braveheart was doing around historical trauma, as it relates specifically to the experiences of American Indians. And that article and the experiences of things that were happening around me sociologically mm -hmm. within the communities that I was living in and interacting with transformed the way in which I thought about health and well-being, the way I thought about like mental well-being. And there at the time, there was a lot of intervention happening in that area where we were thinking of like, well, what does the community and the environmental sort of conditions and the socio-political things that are going on around people, especially in disinvested communities. Fair enough. Well, part of it was that that really helped to reshape my thinking in what I was learning from a highly critical sort of perspective. So I was learning the typical things like, you know, you know, the foundations of psychology, which were important, but I also was having this mm -hmm. educational process of, about the things that were going on around me and the effect it was having on people of color. So we have a diverse listenership. I mean, some folks are regular listeners. We featured things dealing with historical trauma before, and yet I realize that we've often got new people jumping on and they hear this term historical trauma, especially if they're not from a population that resonates with that theme. And, and some people kind of raise their eyebrows and they're kind of skeptical about it. As an indigenous person, what was it that you heard that connected with your life experience that said, hey, I can understand this, maybe in a way that would bring someone else along who maybe doesn't share that background? Well, in some really practical ways for me personally, as somebody who was a fourth or fifth generation boarding school survivor, once I sort of like started to learn this stuff academically and begin to integrate it into my understanding of like, how does that actually 
look in terms of lived experience. I'm reading an article and at the same time I'm reading this reading this research article, I'm having like this very, I guess, visceral reaction in the classroom and in mm. some of the conversations with my colleagues in class about the content and understanding like what was going on with me and my own lived experience at the same time. So they were kind of like parallel process. And one of the things that was interesting about it was like, there were some big things in my life that I didn't understand that I was starting to probably understand as I was going through that process of learning about the work, the seminal work that other people had been doing around this decolonizing psychology, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And what some puzzle pieces in my own personal experience as a person who went to boarding school and lived through that for six or seven years, the experiences of growing up with a parent who had gone through boarding school for most of her life. And then understanding the history of my grandparents and my great grandparents and their lived experiences of boarding school and how that might have influenced my family's history, my family's trajectory and mm. how that ended up relating to like how I was shaped and formed as an individual and then my siblings as well. And then through that experience, some things started to come into some clarity and things started to coming into focus. And I was like, Oh, mm. you know, this is what this is about. This is like my great grandparents, my great grandparents, Maggie and Paula Rock. They were one of the first groups of students that were taken off their reservations, sent to Carlisle. Mm. This is a great piece of um, honor and privilege that my family talks a lot about. My great-grandfather, Paul Rock played football with Jim Thorpe at Carlisle. Yeah, pictures wow. of him. Wow. <laughs> um, wow. And what I know about like those experiences from reading, reading history, reading transcripts, reading research that had been done on boarding school survivors, and there's a body of research, both academic and also community-based, that talks about the impact of those things on our people. Um, when I read those things... I have better understanding of like what my great grandparents and my grandparents went through. Things about my own family's history, the experience of people who I have other kinds of relationships with within the community begin to have a very visceral understanding. And it helped me to begin to organize my own thinking around my life's trajectory, right? I think I started the conversation with you by saying like, I'm not a whole lot different than the like a lot of other native people and and that like I had a lot of the same experiences of them growing up right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I you know I tell people all the time like I'm just a kid from the south side who came from you know two reservation parents no it's an amazing story and it's so relatable I so appreciate you sharing and I love what you're relating basically you're saying I'm learning about something just like anybody could read about it I mean you don't need to be native to read no. about you know the boarding school experience or historical trauma but you're reading it and you're saying hey this explains why this was this way with my grandparents or my parents and and connecting these dots we got to step away just briefly I'm sorry you know we're right in the heat of this but we're going to step away just briefly we're going to come back to Dr. Stately and we're going to go from his experience to where we're at today and important things that impact you and your family. Stay tuned. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be back with the second half of American Indian and Alaska Native Living right after this.
American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Hello, I'm Dr. David DeRose, host of American Indian and Alaska Native Living Radio, with a special word of appreciation for all of you who make this show possible. This radio show comes to you as the result of generous donors who have given us the ability to produce this broadcast for over 20 years. Some of these donors also support our sister programming that is released through Timeless Healing Insights at TimelessHealingInsights.org. You've likely heard us speak about some of those free programs on previous episodes. If you haven't, we have comprehensive programs that use short online videos to help with high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and more. Because of that strong connection, TimelessHealingInsights.org provides a single website to access our radio archives and other free health programs that can help you, your family, and your tribe. Thanks again to all of you who make these quality resources available. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for the second half of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. 
Dr. Anthony Stately is my guest. He's joining us, uh, giving us insights not only into his experience, but uh, also he'll be sharing his perspective as uh, currently serving as the executive officer and president for the Native American Community Clinic in South Minneapolis. Anthony, we've been speaking about your background, this journey from the Northern Plains to Southern California. Really, at least from my lived experience, having lived in both those places in the country, I mean, worlds apart, people were scratching their heads uh, when I uh, moved uh, some years ago. Uh, part of my uh, journeys was from Oklahoma up to Maine. You know, people kind of look at you like, you know, why are you going from someplace warm to someplace cold? Okay. You've made that trip too. You might be wondering yourself sometimes why you did it. But mm -hmm. yeah. before we get there, your work as a psychologist largely shaped by some of those experiences, some of those insights you gained during your graduate uh, studies there in, in California, learning about historical trauma and just how it related to your own experience. So to tell us a little bit about how that transformed really your practice of psychology and then how it's impacted your work with indigenous peoples. There was one really critical thing that happened. When I was in graduate school, I had the great fortune of being able to, for whatever reason, it's kind of a little bit of an anomaly. I don't think it happens in a lot of institutions this way, but I had about five or six additional Native people who were enrolled in the clinical program that I was enrolled in mm. uh, around mm. the same time. Like we were all in the same year, you know, there was like six or seven of us, which was really amazing. So we spent a lot of time talking in our breaks and things like that. But one of the things that happened was I volunteered to run some support groups for this organization called United American Indian Involvement in Los Angeles. And at the time they were like this little tiny operation that was operating out of this two-story house that was fairly dilapidated or building rather I was um, fairly dilapidated on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. Wow. And so I'd go there two days a week to sort of meet with clients who were houseless, who would, uh, and I'd run support groups and I'd have a little bit of individual time with them as well. It wasn't real psychology because I didn't have a practice then. <laughs> I was a student okay. <laughs> doing my best to sort of do something meaningful and supportive. And it was giving me some experience, but one of the things that was really, really transformative about that was that I would always ask people, I'd ask them about their story, about their lives, who they are, where they came from. And you know, 90 to 95% of the people that I would talk to in those situations, they had been themselves homeless or houseless for a really long time, the majority of their adult life. Mm. Their parents, many of them, their parents were houseless. They had moved there to Los Angeles. Los Angeles was a relocation city. A relocation was a policy, a federal policy that was implemented by the federal government in the 1950s to encourage Native people to leave their reservation homelands and go to urban um, relocation sites where they were promised things like housing, jobs, education, those kinds of things, things that didn't actually come to fruition. Mm. So here I am, I'm in this experience where I'm seeing a lot of people who are generationally houseless, their families were houseless before that. And I'm seeing the effects of this policy that we talk about as a historically traumatic event to our people. You know, boarding school mm -hmm. was one of those things with a mm -hmm. bunch of things that are related to that. But I'm seeing the actual lived experience of those things in my everyday 
volunteer experience in that in that role. When I graduated a year or two later, I was practicing as a psychologist, child psychologist specifically because that's where I got my training, a focus of my training on. And I was in this um, other community health center doing that work. And one of my colleagues from graduate school reached out to me. She was working for this. She had left school and gone to work for United American Union Involvement. And she reached out and she said, hey, we're trying to start a children's mental health program here. Would you like to help us with that? And I said, sure, I'll take the meeting. I took the meeting and they hired me as a consultant to help them develop the program. And, you know, her and I did it together. We pounded the pavement. We talked to Los Angeles County Supervisors. We wrote the brand mm-hmm. and the contract. We got a little pot of money to start this the seven generations child and family services center in Los Angeles to serve native kids and families who were struggling with mental health issues. Today, it's the largest native mental health center in Southern California. Wow! So I'm I'm deeply proud of it. I was the inaugural director for that, and we were doing some really important work around addressing these specific issues as it relates to our children and to our families that were pulling themselves, you know, crawling out of poverty, deep poverty. Mm. And we worked to create a program that was really transformative for the Southern California area and Los Angeles specifically. I capitalized on that work and, and with intention left California and I went to, to Seattle and worked at the, University of Washington for a while in the, in the Indigenous Wellness Research Institute because I wanted to better understand from a community-based research process and action-oriented research perspective, like, what does healing look like? Mm. I had focused so much of my early education around the things that were problematic. I wanted to understand what were the solutions, what were the, you know, what was our pathway back to well-being and, and living full lives that were not just where we were surviving, but we were thriving, we were doing well. Mm-hmm. And so I joined a research team that was focused on doing some of that work. And that was really, really helpful because it gave me, the, the, the five years at UW gave me a foundation for understanding the work that I would come back to Minnesota to do. And so that's kind of my trajectory. So I think you've brought us here both in your life experience and kind of uh, got us on the edge of our seats because we're saying, okay, well, you've got all this background. You bring it back to your roots, you know, to the Northern Plains, to Minneapolis area. To my home. What's kind of, Yeah, to your home. Yeah. What's some of the take-home messages for people throughout Indian country? I mean, what are some of those skills or those programs or those community resources? What should we be looking at if we want to really make a difference as far as uh, Native American health? Well, a couple of things that happened when I was at UW is I was in a really small insular sort of like this research center where we really focus on like understanding culture, tradition, ceremonial practice, and those things and the contributions mm-hmm. that those things had to preventing 
poor health outcomes as much as they were about building, rebuilding, and renewing health in communities that had some of the most most significant challenges that we've been talking about. And we did that through a lot of different experiences. I was part of a seven-city study, so it was a metropolitan area. I've done some work in, in tribal and reservation communities, but the lion's share of my work over the course of my career has been primarily with urban or near urban uh, living in their urban areas or around um, and nearby urban areas. It's been a big part of like my career. I think it's important like for your non-Indigenous listeners to know that across the United States, the majority of Native people actually live off of reservations. They don't live on reservation communities. And so that's where I spent a the, the majority of the work that I do in my career, having been a Native person who grew up in an urban environment, and then the only time I really spent any time not in that environment was when I was in boarding school, which is in the middle of nowhere in the middle of South Dakota, um, or when I was living up north in reservation lands with my family um, for periods of time. So I think that, that it was helpful for me to have that lived experience of like growing up in that way and having a family that had the experience that I had to sort of kind of frame my thinking and my understanding of like the challenges that I would confront professionally. What was helpful for me getting out of Minnesota and having and going around and traveling to California then up to Seattle and you know I also did a little bit of like you know traveling around the United States and a little bit of international stuff as well is that I began to understand, like, across Indigenous communities, pretty much anyone I went into, how there was a tremendous desire and call and need for the return to sort of, like, our cultural life ways as a framework and a pathway to recovering and um, our resilience, our strength, our well-being that it was that these are things that I was seeing thematically and practically every community I'd ever worked in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so at the same time, I'm having this personal lived experience in my own life in my recovery process where I'm going back to ceremony and I'm starting to do those things more, much more actively than I had when I was a child. Like, you know, I grew up by, I, I didn't have access to ceremonies when I was growing up in the Twin Cities. And so I'm having this, I'm having a, an experience in the work that I'm doing. And I'm also having this experience in my own life when I'm going back to ceremony and having, and I'm experiencing the changes myself personally. And I'm seeing them in other communities. So these are the things that helped me to understand, like, this is the work that I think I need to sort of have to mm-hmm. cultivate and support in my own community and in my own homelands. And I would say that I'm not, you know, I'm not the person that sort of like created it. I'm like, there are many people in the state of Minnesota and even in my own community that are doing this work. But I think that it helped to see that there were other people that were having the same thought process as me and the experience Mm -hmm. with me. And we were sharing these things and we were, and we were supporting each other's work because the work is too big for any one person to do alone, right? 
we're talking sure, we're sure. talking about the effects of like you know 500 plus years of colonization that's a big <laughs> that's a big a big thing to try to sort of address more than any one person could possibly ever do in their lifetime as i'm listening to you anthony and we've just got a, a few moments before we have to step away just briefly but talking about returning to culture tradition ceremonies this kind of um deepening of cultural roots, building of community among indigenous peoples. This is kind of the theme that I hear you speaking to. Am I hearing that correctly, or is it bigger than that? Yeah, no, it's, I think that is like the, that is a big part of like healing for our communities. We mm -hmm. are a people who organize our lives around intentional ceremonial processes. We are a people who heal together that are social we come together to do everything celebrate mourn grieve transform imagine pray all those things no tremendous we have got to bring this all together in our last segment because i know there's some pressing issues facing many people throughout indian country and it builds on this coming together looking out for each other your own lived experience and how you're translating that today if you're tuning in, you don't want to miss this final segment. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be back. Very important messaging from Dr. Stately. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our final segment of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose with Dr. Anthony Stately. Anthony, we've been speaking a lot about just the background of challenges in Indian country through the window of your own life experience. We really need to bring it all back to where we're at today. From your vantage point, I know you're deeply involved with delivering services in Indian country, deeply connected with your own community, and uh, with indigenous peoples throughout North America. What are some of those big challenges that we're facing today? I think big issues that we're facing, of course, we just came out of a two or three year pandemic, right? And um, there is very, very clear and convincing evidence and actual data, research data and valuation data that demonstrates that Native people across the United States, what we call Turtle Island, have not fared well in that pandemic. We have some of the highest rates of infection, highest rates of hospitalization, and highest rates of mortality. That is true of my own community here in South Minneapolis and also in the state of Minnesota. We continue to lead those cases three years post-pandemic, well, post the, end, the ending of the emergency declaration didn't change the fact that there's still virus out there and it's impacting people. Mm. Part of the, I think, so there's that challenge. We have some of the highest numbers of houseless people in Minnesota. One out of every three to four people who are houseless is native. And the wow. Twin Cities, where I work specifically, it's even higher than that. So we're anywhere between 25 to 33% of the houseless population, even though we're only 1% of the population. Mm. That's a tremendous disparity, right? Mm-hmm. There, we have some of the highest rates of like, you know, lung issues like asthma and COPD and a few other things. We have highest rates of diabetes, obesity, all these big, huge conditions. Of course, we're also in the middle of an opioid use disorder pan- epidemic that is arguably as impactful in many communities. Uh, as is the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, we have these big things that are happening in our community that continue to sort of kind of keep a grip on us. Some real simple solutions involve, like, the work we've been doing at NAC has been, we are focusing on really a harm reduction focus, low barrier access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. We're not requiring you to have health insurance to walk in the front door and get care and get services. Mm-hmm. We're going to meet you where you're at, even if it's like out on the streets. We have a really robust outreach team that goes out and does this thing, this work. And we're testing people for HIV and infectious diseases. We're doing wound care and encampments in about three to five months when we get all of the resources that we need. We'll be doing mobile health care into encampments and into shelter systems because this is a lot Mm. of the place where a lot of our relatives are living who are struggling with these health conditions. And we are also... Community health center, a federally qualified healthcare center, 75 to 80% of our patient population relies on the Medicaid state insurance or the mm-hmm. federal, federal Medicaid program to pay for their healthcare and healthcare services, which means that's our bread and butter, NAC's bread and butter revenue, right? Third party revenue. So we are in the process by which, you know, the pandemic was, is still here and that hasn't gone away necessarily. There's still lots of um, hospitalizations and um, still people dying from COVID. 
But when the emergency declaration ended back in you know, June or July of 2023, what happened was as a result of that was Medicaid started requiring people to get recertified. So if you happen to live on tribal land or off tribal land in an urban environment, and your state is a Medicaid um, expansion state or a Medicaid um, state that pays for public health insurance, you are going to be required to get recertified, whatever that process looks like. Here in mm-hmm. the state of Minnesota, it looks very specific. You will get a, if your address is up to date, you'll get a piece of mail in the mail telling you that you are up for renewal. If your address isn't up to date, you might miss that in the mail. If you happen to be houseless, wow. you're definitely going to miss it in the mail. Right. So what we're trying to do in, with the work in the state of Minnesota, and Mac is kind of engaged in this work, is we're trying to get the message out to every Native person that is in the Twin Cities across the across Minnesota, you know, across Indian country, is like, contact your Medicaid um, provider in your state, update your address, make sure that your current address is the address that they have on file so they can get you that information. Many FQHCs like Mac has have... Um, insurance navigators that will help you get enrolled or re-enrolled in Medicaid or in some other insurance program. The reason we invest heavily in doing that work is because we know that people who have health insurance are much more likely to go to the doctor. They're more likely to take care of their health care and, and to be able to do that with confidence and some fair, fair amount of regularity. These are all really important things to ensure that we have in place so that people can have good health outcomes. In the state of Minnesota specifically, you can go to a website to see where you are with a specific issue. You can go to a website that is mn.gov slash DHS slash renew my coverage, all one word. And you can look up and to see if your address is current, if you were due for um, recertification. And the like. There's also on that website. There's some phone numbers you could call to actually engage with a with the insurance navigator to help you understand whether where you're at with that. You can also go into pretty much any federally qualified healthcare center and talk to somebody who will help you to enroll in insurance and to, to help you solve this problem because it can be a little bit confusing. So let me make sure that for those who are listening from Minnesota that I've got this right. Is it MN.gov, is that the first part of it? Yep. yep. MN.gov slash DHS slash renew my coverage, all one yep. word? Yep. Okay. And other states are going to have something similar. Yeah, I think a lot of states are doing similar experience, similar things. Um, what we have learned over, just between the months of July, like right after the emergency declaration ended in September, was over uh, 100,000 people fell off of insurance wow which is significant right mm-hmm. the cost of people falling off of medicaid and not getting health care and or relying on emergency medicine to do things like you know find out if you have strep throat most people don't go to the emergency room to find out if they have strep throat right, they right, go to our primary right. care doctor or to a community clinic but what will happen is if they fall off of health insurance, they're going to rely on things like emergency rooms. And, mm-hmm. and we need those things to operate for other conditions. But the cost, if we don't do something and we don't do a better job of ensuring that people stay enrolled, 
it could be upwards of $35 billion, which is a lot of money, right? Wow. You know, so, and more importantly, people won't get really critical, critical care. What we have seen happen time and time again is people put off going to see their doctor regularly during the epidemic. They put off doing things like you know, getting their cancer screenings, getting that screening, getting the screening. Mm-hmm. What we find after two or three years of doing that is their health care is in a much worse condition when they arrive. And right. for some people, that results in like early mortality. So we mm-hmm. want people mm-hmm. to be covered and we want them to go in and see the doctor and see mental health providers and, and dentists. We want them to do that because an important part of being healthy and well is also doing these annual visits and, and making sure you're caught up on all those things. This is great messaging. I wish we had two hours together. I know <laughs> yeah. you could have uh, shared with Profit. I, I know uh, probably your schedule nor mine really allows for that today. But the point is, uh, Dr. Stately, we're in the home stretch here as far as the broadcast, but I've so appreciated your willingness to share your personal story, things that have connected you with your people and what you're doing to really help people get this message of connecting with community, connecting with your indigenous roots, but also realizing that right now is a key time to connect with other resources like public assistance, like Medicaid. And I think sometimes people have a hard time putting together those two worlds. You know, when you think of things that maybe the government is providing, maybe things that they would get from their tribal communities. So I appreciate you kind of navigating that for us. So as we wind up, I know there's a kind of a key take home that you wanted to leave people with as far as this whole Medicaid and and re-enrollment. What message do we really need to get out there to everybody in Indian country, everybody listening to this broadcast? I think a couple of things. One thing I want to just say really quickly is that we as Indigenous people, we are like amazing, powerful, resilient individuals. Mm-hmm. Back during the pandemic, we did a better job of vaccinating and taking care of ourselves. And then we took care of the people that lived around us. Many, many communities did that. So do a better job, continue to do a great job and take care of each other. Ask your relatives, you know, hey, are you covered under Medicaid? Are you sure your health care is active? Ask them things like, when was the last time you went to go see a doctor? When was the last time you got mm-hmm. your vaccines caught up on? When have you gotten your cancer screenings? Um, we have to have physical health if we're going to have anything else at all. It's a foundation of who we are, but also just take good care of each other. Tremendous. Dr. Stately, we do have to run. Thank you so much for sharing your valuable perspectives. And to each one of you who've joined us on today's broadcast, thank you for investing time in your own health and that of your communities. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One. The Native American Radio Network.